For the second episode of the J-Curves Latin American Power Women in Tech series, I'm thrilled to welcome Manuela Mitchell, founder and CEO at PeopleSaudi, operator of health benefits platform, whose customers include Brazilian unicorns, Madeira, Madeira, and Buzzer, and that has recently raised 20 million Series A from the likes of Thrive Capital, Monashis, Kazek, Atlantico, and New Bank's co-founder, David Vélez. Manuela, welcome to the J-Curve. Thank you very much. Uh, I would like to start with some history and context. What was your key driving force to become an entrepreneur in Latin America and build a startup in one of the most complex markets in Brazil? That's a very good question, and it's not an easy one to answer. <laughs> I don't think there was like one driving force. And to be honest, like I didn't see myself as an entrepreneur um, when I was a kid or when I was a young uh, professional. Um, I wanted to be... I was very ambitious with my career, so I wanted to be a successful woman. Uh, and I started in private equity, and I did private equity for almost seven years here in Brazil, covering healthcare. And then at a certain point, I fell in love with an idea, which was actually an investment thesis that I was looking uh, at as an investor. And then I decided to leave to start my company in that same investment space, which was healthcare in 2018. And when I left, Actually, I didn't leave to start people. I, I started another company called Seals. And then uh, that company didn't go right. So we tried to do it for like seven, nine months. And then we started a new one, which was called Juno. And then Juno uh, was already like the same idea that we have at people. Just changed the name. Because you had an experience with startup failure, I have to ask you this question. What were your key learnings out of that experience that you managed to apply to people? I would say my key learning uh, would be never fall in love with a solution. Always fall in love with a problem. I think the, the way I started was pretty much, well, I love this idea. I'm going to start my own in Brazil. And it was like a, an idea that I had seen in the U.S. I don't think like copying ideas from the U.S. and starting exactly the same thing in Brazil is very smart. So I learned that. Um, and also, I think the second key learning was go for a market opportunity that's big enough and that has enough clients. So the first idea had a very big market opportunity. But in the end, the amount of clients that could hire the solution I was building was like eight. And in the end, if you have like maybe 50% market share, you have four clients. And then four clients is not necessarily like a business. It's more like a consulting firm. Did you start that company with the same team uh, as people? So one of my co-founders was there already, Tiago. And then the third co-founder named Vinicius, he joined after we failed the first one. Then he joined four for people. How did you guys get together as a team? What was the thinking process behind becoming co-founders? And how did you think about the role distribution on a team level? In terms of how we got together, uh, Tiago and I, we went to, to university together. So we were very good friends and we always spoke to each other about starting a company together. Uh, and then Vinicius was also a learning that we had in our first business that if you are trying to do something in tech, you should have a technical co-founder. Um, and then I met Vinicius through a common friend um, and we, we started speaking almost a year before he joined. And then the process of like really coming together and starting the firm and saying, okay, so that's it. We're going to co-founders was pretty much we had I would say a couple of weeks where we discussed the company we wanted to build but not from a solution standpoint but mostly from a culture standpoint so what kind of culture do we believe in like what are the values what type of people do we want to hire um, 
And I think when we decided that we were all aligned on that aspect, that's when we said, okay, we are ready to be co-founders and we're going to start a company together. And then in terms of like role, I think we didn't we didn't think that much. I think we were very complementary. So um, we said, okay, we have operations simplifying. We have tech and product, and then we have sales, fundraising, uh, people, like a few a few other parts of the company and. That's going to be divided between like a COO, a CTO, and a CEO. And then we all agreed on who was a better fit to each part. I absolutely love your thinking around what company you're trying to build from culture versus solution standpoint. And culture that you guys managed to build in people is something that I want to discuss in details. I've heard from many people that you managed to create is very unique and inclusive, tailored to diversity of thought, genders, and sexual orientations with extremely high retention rate and employee satisfaction level. So talk to me a little bit about how you managed to implement this kind of culture, especially in Latin America, where diversity among key employees in both VC and tech has a lot of room for improvement still. I'm very proud of the culture we are building here. And it was a process like it's it's not because of one thing that we did, but multiple things in combination. So I think we have a strong culture because we thought about culture early on. I think a lot of entrepreneurs, they put like growth and scalability as priorities. Um, we didn't like we were, of course, we want to grow. Of course, we want to have a, a super uh, gigantic company in Latin America. But culture was the zero of people because we had uh, me as the CEO um, as a female founder, uh, as a CEO, as a lesbian CEO, I think that also was strong from a diversity standpoint. So that attracted a lot of talent because in Latam, as you said, we still have a lot to work, especially when it comes to diversity. Even though we are a diverse population, if you look about the if you look at the entrepreneurs, it's a very similar profile still. And then the second thing that helped a lot, we were very, very intentional about, about having diverse people in the company early on. So we created dedicated positions for diverse people based on race, gender, uh, sexual orientation, and et cetera. And, and that created a diverse space that after a while brought other diversity without any intentional need. So today we almost don't do any exclusive uh, positions or dedicated positions because we have so many diverse people that they are hiring other diver diverse people. And I think that uh, created something that's very unique to our culture that creates a super fun environment to work at. And I think that has been very powerful in terms of like talent retention as well. So it, it was a self-fulfilling prophecy, but we continue to have a strong people team that is looking at diversity, the diversity measures at our company. We are always monitoring it to make sure uh, we are being true to, to what we believe. So you had an experience of working in private equity before in the environment, which is arguably way less diverse than the one you create in people. So tell me, why diversity is so important and what is the impact of diversity on the company's performance that you see? For sure, like private equity was definitely not diverse. And I always tell people that I think private equity taught me a lot of things. And I'm very, very glad to have started my career in private equity. But it definitely didn't didn't teach me anything about diversity. Um, and to think about like people versus what I have, I think diversity makes uh, def we are definitely a very creative company, very engaged company. I think it's very inspiring to work with people that you admire on a professional, but, but also a personal level. And I think because of that environment that you create, that it's fun, that it's 
creative. That's a lot of things. It's also an environment that people want to stay at. And looking at the, the amount of capital that we have in Latin America right now, which is amazing for entrepreneurs, but it has created a talent war. You haven't lost key talent uh, so far. If I had to tell you why, I think that's the reason. I think probably the diverse background and the strong culture are probably the key factors to that. Oh, I absolutely agree that diversity has a huge impact on creativity, engagement, as well as retention. And like you mentioned, due to the current proliferation of capital in Latin America, the competition over talents, especially engineering talents, is severe. So it's very interesting to see how diverse and inclusive corporate culture serves as a natural protection from people cheering for people. Maybe I'll ask one more question on culture before we move on. If you were to describe the people's culture, how would you describe it? What are the core values besides diversity? I wouldn't even put diversity into the, the values. I think diverse is how we work and how we operate as a company. And I would put almost diversity in the same bucket that I would put we are a remote first company, which is something that's very unique about who we are. And um, the diversity is not only like we have people in 51 cities in Brazil, which is huge as well. So we are super spread out. But I would think the values like working at people would look like a, an environment where you get a lot of autonomy. So we really, really empower people with context and strategy and we let them decide on how they want to approach that problem. Um, we are a very curious environment. So we have a, we, like learning and development were things that we started very early on as well. We want to enforce the, the, the power of like training people and teaching them how to do things like how do we do a, a query? How do we work like in complex spreadsheets, um, like small things? And, and I think that's been very true since the beginning. Third thing I would say, we are people mentality. So we are very aggressive towards giving equity to our employees. We believe that a partnership is the best way to align people. Um, and then another core value that I think really describes what we are, I think that we have autonomy, but we also have a lot, a lot of collaboration. And we see that as key to not having an anarchy and also not having a company that's too slow to move fast. So kind of like the balance of those, I think uh, that's very important, especially because as a, a digital broker, in order to deliver value to your clients, it's, re it's very hard for a team to do it like on a standalone basis. So teams have to collaborate for a common goal. And, and I think that's very true with people as well. So one of the things, and I'm from emerging markets, that I'm constantly thinking about regarding building and managing teams in Latin America is that Latin American's culture is very risk averse. How you as a leader inspire your people to push their limits and take risk and not to worry about downside in this environment, especially given that you are fully remote and give people a lot of autonomy. Yeah. To be honest, the equity culture and taking risk, I think people is not the the company that has changed the market. But I think like the success stories as like Stone, Nubank, I think they really have changed the mindset of the people working for startups. Everyone wants equity and see a lot of value in equity and the equity upside. So I think that's not true for everyone here at Brazil, but for people that are like, I work, I love working at startups. I really want to work at that startups. I think they want that kind of exposure. And I think we have been very different from the other companies here in the market is on the sense that we have been very generous towards distributing equity. We have a, a ritual that happens every semester that we distribute equity to the top 10 to 20% performers of the company. And currently 40% of the company are has at least one share of people. 40% of the company has at least one share of people. This is very impressive. I know you mentioned Stone and New Bank as a prime example of incentivizing employees through equity ownership. 
Yet people is more of an exemption than a rule. We definitely need more companies that align their employees around long-term results. And talking about which, what does success look like for people Saudi if everything goes right? Where will you be five years from now? So if everything goes right, hopefully five years from now, we'll be able to influence people to make better healthcare decisions. So I think people will people in general, like patients, they will trust people in order before making a big healthcare decision in their lives. And that will lead to a world that has lower healthcare costs and better healthcare outcomes. So we always say that we want to be the company that is trusted by, by patients and and companies purchasing healthcare here in Brazil. So in one of the interviews, you mentioned urgent care culture among Brazilian yeah. population. So could you please elaborate a little bit on that, as well yeah. as what is your strategy to change their, to, to, to maybe initiate this mental shift among population to build this trust that you just mentioned? Um, if I may do a step back here, I think healthcare has a big, big challenge, uh, which is it's not so straightforward to convince people. Like if you are offering people a service that's cheaper, like oh, I'm offering them a digital bank that has a credit card that's super cheap. I think that's a very straightforward value prop. In healthcare, it's it's different and it's harder because usually what happens is that your company, like for most cases, your company will pay your healthcare plan and then you use your healthcare plan. And then if you don't use your healthcare plan in the right way, costs will go up and then probably your company will trade down your healthcare plan. And then over time, like 20 years from now, you have a worse healthcare plan than you had uh, 20 years before. So that's the picture of the last 20 years. But you are not necessarily the one paying the bill. And that requires people to first understand there is a problem there and understand that their, their behavior has consequences, especially when the behavior is an urgent care behavior. So here in Brazil, 20% of the healthcare costs is like people going to the emergency room. We have a huge emergency room culture in the sense that I wake up, I have a headache, I'm feeling sore, I want to go to the gym tomorrow. Like I, I'm making a very extreme example here, but I want to go to the gym tomorrow. So I was like, you know, I want to get into antibiotics right now. I'm going to go to the emergency room. I'm going to get a prescription in two hours and I'm going to start my treatment. So emergency room has become like a synonym for convenience here in Brazil because we have had historically no deduction and almost zero co-payment. So the, the the healthcare plan and the company paying for healthcare plan, they were incurring all the costs, but you created a mindset. And even now by creating co-pay and trying to, to incentivize the alignment between the parties, it's not changed. And sometimes because people, they don't understand how they can change it, right? So if I'm not going to the emergency room, but I still want to, to seek convenience, where should I go? Right. And we see people's role. On, we know where you should go and we can get you convenience for half the price. And by the way, like the emergency room doctor will be a generalist. We can take you to somewhere that's like specialist in headaches. You know, if that's the case and if you have been uh, dealing with headache problems for, for a long time. Um, but people need they need to call you and they need they need a step that was not in their healthcare journey. So you need a, a cultural mindset that needs to be changed and that, that that's not easy. Um, so what we are trying to do really talks about educating people about their behavior and creating a product, a solution that's like super uh, user-friendly, that we create a super clear use case for them. They were like, I want to use those guys. Those guys are like making my life 10 times easier than before, even though I have to make this phone call. So I think that's the challenge that we have in the in the years to come. And when you think about the educational aspect, because I feel like uh, with all pretty much every vertical uh, that is being disrupted at the moment, there is a, education is almost a must. 
So what's the effective strategies to educate population, given how massive it is, given how distributed it is, and also given that a lot of people uh, live uh, below poverty line or just, you know, getting into the lower middle class level? For me, like, I don't think there is a silver bullet that's going to do it all. From a corporate standpoint, we are trying to do, like, produce content, produce videos, produce people that we are raising um, attention to important matters or like you're, you go into the emergency room. We're not talking about cost because they don't necessarily pay for that money, especially in private healthcare, but we are talking about your healthcare outcome. Like you are going to the emergency room six times a year. You're not treating the cause, like why you should be going to a specialist. So really educating people. But one of the pillars that I'm most excited about is the patient community. I think that's going to be huge in the years to come. Like if you think about us as a society, the community portion has been bigger and bigger. So thinking about news, right? Of course, you still read the news and you still like see the news at the TV. But most people now, they talk to their friends in WhatsApp and they get the news about the election from there, from their trusted community. So how do we create, how are we the enablers of a community where people that have diabetes, they are discussing among among themselves and recommending doctors like, oh, Rather than going to the emergency room, I have been going to this doctor. I never had to go to the emergency room again because of my diabetes. You know, how do you make other people talk to each other and them being the, the educators? I think that's going to be key for healthcare. And I'm a strong believer that's going to that's gonna be one of the, the most pillars of the company. Regarding the enterprise angle, there is a significant number of high growth tech companies among your customers, including tech unicorns in Brazil. Was that an intentional decision to leverage startup ecosystem as more prepared to adopt digital products? If, if I were to open my first pitch deck that I did, uh, my go-to-market strategy there was I want to start in the startup ecosystem. So it was an intentional move um, and a lot to do with Every solution, it's going to have their early adopters. I'm talking about a B2C market. It's probably going to be like the, the Generation Z or something like that. For for us, a B2B company selling to enterprise and then talking to the members like a B2B2C, we were like, we need to get the early adopters, the Generation Z um, of the company. So we, we decided to go with the startups first. And then we started with the small startups. Then we had larger startups. Then we had unicorns. Then we had um, companies that were doing digital transformation. Now we are having incumbent companies. So I think it's a process, like it's a, it's a, it's a curve, right? And um, it, having the startup strategy was very important in the, in the early days. With 100 corporate clients, you're definitely doing a great job with scaling into large enterprise segments. And the recent 20 million Series A is a great validation of people's traction as well as potential. But paired with COVID-19 tailwinds that healthcare industry is experiencing, it also invites competition. So my question to you is, how you think about competition? And what are some of the strategies you use to address it? The competition that we have today is uh, mainly educating the the sector and proving them that it's that we can do something different in comparison to how they have been they have operated in the past. So I think for me the biggest competition is legacy and incumbent solutions and incumbent mindset of our customers. I see new entrants, especially the startups that even might be competitors of people, as as a good thing to the market because the market like the, the private healthcare market in Brazil has 45, 46 million uh, private lives. And then the startup 
startups, if we if we put all the startups doing healthcare together, I don't think they have over 200,000 lives. So it's like still very, very small, very early days. So it's about, it's about going um, and leaving the early adopters and expanding the market size. And I particularly think that as an entrepreneur, you shouldn't be super obsessed about competition. I think you should be super obsessed about your customer and about their needs and, and how you so how do you address that, those needs? I love how you think about people and other players in the space as of early adopters that are expanding the markets. As we talked before, the Latin American region is experiencing an influx of capital. And you are one of the prime examples of entrepreneur who is excellent in fundraising. So I wonder, how do you think about fundraising? Is it a distraction or an important part of CEO job? And what's your take on high valuations driven by preemptive rounds? And what are the common mistakes entrepreneurs make when raising? Fundraising is part of um, a CEO's role because as a CEO, you need to make sure you are you have the best people. Like best people are definitely your your highest chance of achieving success. In order to hire the best people, you need money. You need to pay them well, and you need to create a good environment for those people to work at. So um, I see, like I have always have to look at cash, cash management, and fundraising as part of my job. And fundraising is not a, a thing that you start and you say I'm going to fundraise two months from after that. I'm going to sign a term sheet. And I'm going to just go back to my normal life. Fundraising is a process, and most of the process is like before you actually start fundraising. So like meeting investors, creating relationships, telling your story, um, cultivating good relationships. So once you are ready to fundraise, you are in a good position, in a strong position to fundraise. So I think that's my take on fundraising. And and then the second comment that I have is people only think about fundraising as the good part, right? I'm going to have a lot of capital. I have 100 million reais now. I'm going to execute a lot. But fundraising, like with great money comes great responsibility. I always say this sentence because I think it's absolutely true. The value of our company is going to be super high because a lot of growth and a lot of transformation is going to be embedded on how they evaluate your company. So as a, an entrepreneur, you need to be sure that you can actually deliver and that you have the right amount of money to deliver deliver on that value that they are calculating. So why am I saying that? So I see a lot of entrepreneurs trying to get small rounds at high markups. For me, that's one of the biggest mistakes because you end up in a valuation trap. Second thing that I see is people getting flying term sheets, like they close a round, they get, they raise more money on top. And then after one day, their valuation has doubled. Unless you have raised that are like a very bad valuation one day before, uh, what has happened that your company really doubled its value in a, in a single day? So I, I always tend to be cautious when it comes to, to valuation and the valuation trap associated to it. So raise a good round that you're going to be able to execute for the next especially 18 to 24 months and and think about that uh, and always raise when you are in a strong position to raise rather than being in a weak position. So you were in a strong position to raise both on a seed round and series A. I wonder what was the thinking process behind selecting the right investors? I mean, you have some of the best domestic and international VCs on your cap table. What value add you were looking for? And more broadly, what should entrepreneurs be looking for in funding partners? Yeah, so so that's a very good question. And I think I'm gonna I'm gonna give my rationale of how I chose my partners and hopefully that's transferable to other entrepreneurs. But basically, uh, we are a B2B company um, primarily. We are based in Brazil. Um, we don't see ourselves going out to becoming an international company like in the next five to 10 years. I think Brazil is a huge market. It has a lot of complexities that we need to solve before expanding. And we had a lot of challenges in terms of growth and scalability that we we necessarily didn't have the experience. So we thought about those kind of like challenges and how our investor base could could be complementary to those. So we had 
Monashis and Kazakh as local partners, super premium partners. Uh, they, they know a lot about Brazil. They have a lot of connections because in the B2B business, that's important to start your company. Um, they have invested in the region. So they know a lot of the challenges about hiring technology people, doing product, scaling it up. So they can really value add on those aspects. And then if I look at the healthcare sector, so thinking about my series A, I think the healthcare sector is one of those sectors that it's very comparable to what's happening in the US. I think Brazil is probably like five to 10 years behind, but what we are trying to do is very similar and the problems that we have are very similar to what, what exists in the US. Then when we bought, brought Thrive, we brought one of the largest digital healthcare investor, investors that existed in the US, trying to learn from their experiences and from their portfolio company and achieving an angle that was not possible with local Latin American investors. Now I want to move to a slightly different direction and talk about tech entrepreneurship in Brazil. I want to start with a topic I'm deeply interested in, which is high concentration of tech entrepreneurship in bubbles like Sao Paulo. Huge number of people who start tech companies in the country and raise capital are very well educated and went to Stanford GSB or HBS doing their masters. Why do you think it is the case and what could be done to democratize and access to entrepreneurship in Brazil? That's a very good question. And to be honest, like I don't have a solution for that. I think it's improving now that we have more capital uh, because like five, three years ago, they, we didn't have a lot of capital available. So they were really raising people that, that are really VC type of entrepreneur, which was basically, I, I did an MBA abroad. Uh, I had some professional experience. Now I'm trying to revolutionize the sector. That was the typical person that raised money in Brazil. Now with more capital, I think that profile, the supply of that profile is smaller than the demand that we have in terms of money. So I think naturally... Uh, that's going to be democratized on itself. And then I think the second avenue for democratizing the, the access is seeing people leaving the startups and starting their own startups. Vinicius, my, my partner here at People, he didn't go to Stanford. He didn't do an MBA, but he was employee number 20 at Nubank. And then looking at his, the same class that he, he, he started, that he was at Nubank, most of his colleagues left as well to start startups. And then I think the second generation that's starting to pop up right now in the past, I would say, 12 months and still raising money, they are going to change a little bit of the type of the, the entrepreneur. And then that's going to change even further within time. And when you think about major inhibitors of tech ecosystem growth in the region, what would be those? Maybe a couple examples. Uh, access to talent, especially software engineers and tech, like good tech talent. I think that's one of the, the things pulling us back. The second, I think... The risk aversion that you just mentioned, a lot of people prefer to have nine to six jobs with a lot of guarantees and, and rights from the government. And then third, I think right now there is this image of you becoming a tech entrepreneur and being able to make money and being successful. So today, Nubank just IPO'd, which is a like huge, huge mark for the, the ecosystem here to prove people that it's possible to start a company and make a lot of money. Not only the, the founders, but everyone. And I think that starts changing the mentality. Like when I left school, university, if you wanted to be successful, private equity, investment banking, management consulting, no one was going to startups, like startups when they were not even a thing. Uh, now, if you go to the top talent at 
at the top universities in Brazil and you ask them what they want to do, they don't want to go into banking, even though banking is paying like 10 times more than they're going to get paid at a startup. Do you see any collaboration, like intentional collaboration between uh, tech sector and uh, universities, like you brought University of Sao Paulo? Do you see that coming? Because this is a very well-established model in the U.S., right? When a lot of yeah. VCs partner with uh business schools partner with uh, undergrad, especially computer science. Do you see any trends and the dynamics towards that kind of collaboration happening? Unfortunately, no. Uh, I think it's still like that there is some, but very, very shy. Um, I have this give back mentality to USP because it's a public university here in Brazil. So we did it, I didn't pay to go to university. And every time that I have some kind of like spare time, I go there, I talk to the students, I, I tell them about my story, I recruit for people. Talking about the institution, the institution is more still very thinking about the old economy. What do you think are the critical things to know for anyone building tech business in Brazil or anyone willing to become an entrepreneur in Brazil based on your own experience? What you wish you'd, you'd know when you started your entrepreneurial journey? Um, what I wish I would know, I would say number of customers, always go for a market, not only that's big, but that you have a large number of customers, uh, spend 95% of your time understanding the problem and 5% of the time thinking about the solution because the solution will change multiple times. Um, it's better to get stuff done than rather than getting stuff per perfect, especially in the beginning, because like in theory, even though you know the problem and you have the flow in like a uh, Figma, like perfectly mapped, uh, it's going to be different once you start like really operating. People are going to like, you're going to see fraud. You're going to see people not understanding the flow and the usability that you have created. So, so test and iterate fast. And finally, don't put a lot of complexity uh, in your business. So try to control your destiny and start small and then expand. So when I started people... People is a healthcare broker, so I was like, as a healthcare broker, I want to I want to sell all the healthcare plans that exist in Brazil. Literally, like I didn't know the 24 healthcare uh, insurance companies that existed in their 10, 20, 20 plans. Like I couldn't map out a thousand products, so I tried to start very large, and that complexity ate the company up a bit. So if I could go back in time, I would start with one healthcare plan, only selling to people wanting that only healthcare plan, then go move to the second once we automated the flow and, and start incremental from there. Now. I'd like to move to rapid fire section. I'll ask you five short questions and I'll appreciate your immediate responses. Let's dive right in. My first question to you is, when you think about success, who is the first person that comes to mind? Obama. Interesting. Why would Obama be the first person? I think probably because of like how unanimous he, he was and like how charismatic he was as a leader. I think he's, he's a very successful and very smart guy. Like, I, What is the toughest decision you had to make in the last year? Could be personal or professional or both? I would say moving from that marketplace of selling 40 plans and then going back to selling 10. Um, I think that was probably one of the toughest decisions that I made. What is the most counterintuitive thing you've learned while doing business in Brazil? When you see a lot of um, bureaucracy, you always imagine there is a huge opportunity to change things. In Brazil, it's not necessarily this way. Sometimes bureaucracy can only mean bureaucracy and things won't be changed, so the status quo will be maintained. Which one book every entrepreneur should read? The hard things about hard things. I think like one of the most tough things I had to learn as an entrepreneur is like having crucial conversations and making hard decisions. And I think reading this book really helps you understand that's going to be your life from now on. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, that's why I like it so much. What is the valuable company in Brazil nobody is building yet? I think 
if I had to start a company again, like the, probably the problem that I would pick now is how do I book appointments in doctor's agendas in the, in the slots that they got canceled immediately or they are free? How do I monetize those free slots for a differentiated price, creating the convenience that an emergency room creates? So you'll basically build gym pass or class pass for doctors. For doctors, yes, I, I would go there. Amazing. Thank you so much, Manuela. Thank you for being with me today. I really, really appreciated our conversation and your time. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. It was, it was very nice. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The J-Curve. It was a great pleasure having Manuela as my guest. To learn more about PeopleSaudi, go to www.peoplesaudi.com.br. And to hear more from us, follow me on LinkedIn or Instagram at Olga Maslikova with KH. The J-Curve is also available on iTunes and Spotify to download, rate, and subscribe. Thanks for being with me today.